Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. On this week's episode, I'm excited to welcome to the show an undeniable icon of fright and one of genre cinema's most audacious final girls. Known to horror fans for her zeitgeist-defining role as Stretch in Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, she's also appeared in a wealth of film and TV that includes Leprechaun 3, Rob Zombie's Halloween 2, Blood Feast, Days of Thunder, and a personal favorite of mine, Tales of Poe. <laughs> <laughs> a horror legend and mighty femme fatale, please welcome Carolyn Williams. Thank you, Michael. Oh my gosh, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's so good to finally have you here. I, it's so good to finally be here. I've had to watch a cavalcade <laughs> of my peers and competitors, you know, gracing this seat. Well, you're here now. And I have to say, horror fans, there's something truly delightful about being in a sound studio and uh, looking at Caroline with uh, headphones on behind a microphone that certainly evokes images of your most iconic role. Are you feeling a little like Stretch right now? I'm feeling like it's Kay Oakland, Burke Burnett, Texas, Red River, Rock and Roll. <laughs> well, why don't we start the show the same way I start every show with the same first question I ask every guest, and it is simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. Why does horror appeal to you? Why do you think audiences are drawn to it? But why horror? Why not? It's the only genre of film that that truly, absolutely, honestly um, – takes on the idea of evil within human beings. Either the evil within the human being himself that he has to fight against, try to rectify, try to deal with, or the evil in the world that he must contend with and try to vanquish because it's real. Um, The world is an ugly, primitive, scary place. And... Toby used to say that horror is the contemporary version of the 1930s, 40s, 50s Westerns, which was also constantly the war between good and evil. Um, It just took the form of what then were cowboys and Indians. Um, Today, it's a lot more seductive, hidden, multi-layered, and frequently kind of inexplicable, you know? And I think... A great horror director is not afraid to really confront that. There used to be in the '90s. It was very horror was very nihilistic. Um, it just seemed to have no rhyme or reason. Devil's Rejects to me is just the best example of that. Right, and it's interesting that you make reference of Toby Hooper's idea that horror was sort of a modern western, and then look at an example like The Devil's Rejects because when I think of Toby's work, especially Chainsaw and Chainsaw Two, they are. Uh, in a way, an antithesis of what we think of gothic horror movies. Gothic horror movies tend to be very dark and and shadowy and foggy, whereas those movies are very baked in the sun. Mm-hmm. I mean, even though there's darkness, especially uh, in the underground of Texas Chainsaw 2, that final shot of you, like, in broad daylight, that's a Western. The right. idea that, like, you are, you are standing tall, like, in, in, the, uh, in the desert, you know, and... Uh, I love knowing that he thought that and then thinking of his movies and immediately being like, of course. Mm-hmm. Y- you uh, you had to have that final, like, you know, showdown. and Absolutely. And, uh, you know, Rob borrowed so generously from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Chainsaw Massacre 2. Um, I actually admired the fact that he chose to utilize some of the set pieces from those films for Devil's Rejects. I thought it worked very, very well. And then, of course, he went gothic right. with Lords of Salem, which is my favorite, um, because I grew up with a version of horror that was very romantic. And uh, the stuff with Vincent Price and Barbara Steele, uh, the Universal Monsters, uh, you know, they they brought forth a lot of feelings of love and affection and uh, for the protagonist and antagonist. Sure. I wanted to be Barbara Steele, you know, in Black Sunday. I wanted to be her. Well, especially when you think of Barbara Steele in Black Sunday, and, and we look at kind of the history of Hollywood mm-hmm. and the roles that were afforded to women at the time. Yes. She actually played a role that was not being seen in mainstream cinema. You were either the heroine or the love interest or, you know, a side character. Uh, 
And here's Barbara Steele, kind of this opulent Gothic queen. Completely. And that's amazing. I mean, and that's sort of goes back to what, uh, you know, a lot of the discussion on the Dead for Filth is usually about is how genre does tend to take those first steps into territory of representation in different ways. And maybe, you know, it, it utilizes that otherness both for and against the character. But like you said, it's so versatile and broad. Mm-hmm. And plus, I think Bava, being European, being Italian, was not afraid of female sexuality. Barbara Steele was one of the most obviously sexual beings in film overall. You know, her, her characterizations also tracked very closely with Vampira, who was much more almost an absurd comic figure, um, simply because she never showed up in any movies that would have permitted her to illustrate her character in a more serious way. But Barbara Steele had that identity so firmly in hand. And I think it's what makes those movies incredible. You know what's interesting? I I, I don't know if you know this about Vampira, but I know that you love Hollywood history. Oh, yes. And uh, so this is a little tidbit that I learned uh, recently about Vampira is that Vampira would hang out at Schwab's, which, you know, is a famous location in old Hollywood. And she knew people like Brando and James Dean. And the studio producers would come and talk to her and they would say, who are the creeps? Like, who are the creeps here? And in, in that era, like that meant like, who are the weirdos? Who are the strange people? Mm-hmm. Because they knew that the people who were uh, a little bit off were the ones who were bringing the more interesting performances. And Vampira helped like point out, like, you know, these are the people who are doing something a little different. They're using a different school of acting. So she was kind of like behind the scenes manipulating. She really was. And the thing is, she was a remarkable actress in her own right. She never really had the opportunity to prove it. Right. The fact that Brando and James Dean were so transfixed by her, you know, she had affairs with both of those men. And her affair with James Dean, given the disparity in their ages at the time, was sort of scandalous. And it blacklisted her, not Dean. Right. And his sexuality was so sort of ambiguous um, throughout his career. And I think he liked it that way. I think he did, too, especially in an era where uh, ambiguous sexuality was really not a discussion. But it is interesting that you raise the point that she was blacklisted because of the disparity in age, because it does kind of go into that that larger conversation of how Hollywood treats women of a certain age or women. Oh. And, and as <laughs> I'm, I'm learning that <laughs> as, you say, as I'm sure you have just like having had a career that has spanned time in the industry, there must be an, a noticeable shift in behaviors and how you engage with the industry. It's deliberate on my part. Um, I was married, as you know, for very many years, had a couple of kids. My older son is autistic. Uh, That was a job in and of itself. By the time I started to come into my own a little bit, and it was because of Eric Anglin, and it was because of Adam Green casting me in their movies, uh, Contracted and Hatchet 3, respectively, I thought to myself, you know, I can do this. I might be getting older, but I can do this. And at the time, Barbara Crampton had begun to reemerge as well. Right. And, you know, about three years ago, I thought to myself, who I I literally thought to myself, who do I want to be just in the world? And I thought I missed my 40s. I want to kind of get my 40s back, but... If I'm really going to aggressively pursue this business, I've got to repackage what I'm selling and come up with something else. And what I've noticed with the blonde hair and, you know, getting myself in shape and, you know, I, 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 you know, I got divorced. I moved into my own place. I felt like I was reborn, entirely reborn. And what I'm finding is I don't know that they really know what to do with me. They're not accustomed to women my age dating. Right. And being sexual beings and not hiding that and wearing the clothes that I wear and going to rock shows and doing the things I'm doing. Younger filmmakers have no problem. Right. You know? But it's the establishment that has a certain idea of what women should be doing 
at at certain points in their lives and their careers. And that's interesting because I don't think it's women who are making those those decisions uh, for themselves. It's like the society is just saying like, well, you are this, so you should oh, be this. Oh, no, no, no. Women are. Women are. And I hate to throw this out there. It's one of Hollywood's dirty little secrets. The Mean Girls thing doesn't really stop. You're always going to have that segment of the population that is wildly competitive and has an immediate and visceral reaction to certain women. Mm-hmm. I come across more as a man's woman. Um, a lot of women come across as women's women. Women's women make it a lot easier as they grow older because they're willing to conform to expectations. Right. Um, younger women, it doesn't seem to be so much. But I did just experience this with a very high-level property that I, the director had chosen me to star in his uh, piece, and he fought for me for three weeks. And the network, which is comprised of women, uh, absolutely shut him down. Now, they may not have it in for me. I took it a little personally. My director took it a little personally, um, but there it is. Right. Uh, it wasn't my look. Uh, it was the number. I'm 62 years old. Mm-hmm. What is she doing being 62 years old and looking like that? What is this on her Instagram? <laughs> I mean, I'm <laughs> naked on my freaking Instagram. Well, you know what? Yeah, I am. I still, uh, I'm having sex. Right. I have sex with younger guys. I wear revealing clothes. I enjoy swinging my hips. That is who I am. Well, and I think that you are living the life that you want to live, which is literally what this show's all about. <laughs> exactly. So we're talking about uh, the you and the now, but let's let's go back a little bit. Let's of let's course. let's do the trajectory of of your your work in this industry and your interest in this industry. You are from Texas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you grew up uh, there until you moved here for movies. Is that Absolutely. is that correct? Yes. So, so tell me about when you first started engaging with the world of acting. Were you always a fan of film? Did you know this was always something that you wanted to do? Or was there like a moment? There really was a moment. I had always been in love with film. There were a few scattered production companies, modeling agencies, maybe one casting office. Mm-hmm. Um I actually wanted to start out being a singer, and that was what I pursued principally because there were a lot more outlets and areas to utilize that talent in Texas at the time than there were movies. Right. Um, It was at the suggestion of someone else who said, wow, you've got all this going on. Why aren't you doing movies? Well, Urban Cowboy had happened. Um, Terms of Endearment had happened. The Houston film market was really blowing open. I thought, you know what? I'm going to give it a shot. And within, I would say, three to six months of my acting lessons, I got hired by Louis Mall, who was an international, internationally known French filmmaker. Yes. And I wanted to talk about this because as a, a fan of, of cinema in general, Louis mm-hmm. Mall is no small name. Like, oh, I mean, not at all. His impact in world cinema and as a filmmaker is, is very much revered. Uh, you know, it's a point of discussion of film critics and scholars. And for your first film really out of the gates to be hired by a titan of European cinema of course, is amazing. So tell me a little bit about that experience. Um, I knew what a great opportunity it was, and I didn't give myself any... I didn't entertain any ideas that I was actually going to win the audition. I had auditioned for Vim Vendors, another European filmmaker. Texas is a character in films. Right. And no less in in Louis' movie because it was the story of Vietnamese fishermen basically going to war with Texas fishermen in the Gulf Coast. Um, Starring Ed Harris, Amy Madigan, and um, a young unknown from uh, uh, Saigon. But when I went to read for him live, and everything was live with him, uh, basically he hired me on the spot. Uh, I started to leave the room, and and he welcomed me to the production, and I was stunned. Um, I was green. I had no experience really in front of the camera except for TV commercials and industrials, not in the same category. And I was thrust into this phenomenal world uh, with a filmmaker whose personal life was as illustrious as his professional accomplishments. But uh, 
you know, the man was definitive in the world of film and cinema with Atlantic City, Au Revoir Les Enfants, um, all the myriad films that he's that he's known for, Pretty Baby. Um, I was intimidated, like you wouldn't believe. And at the time, I was still, uh, I had developed a really impressive alcohol and drug problem. And when I went down to Corpus Christi to shoot the film, they put all of us up in apartments. I had my own apartment. Wow. Um, and they had regular little people going out and doing things. And I was I was being invited out by my peers who were hired locally as Texans. And I dared not go. I thought, the minute you start, you will not be able to show up for work. You will be fired and this will be over. Right. Um, it was an object lesson. It was an It was an acting lesson. He was the most generous of men when I think back on it. Oh, God. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. I seem to recall a story that you told me once that you had an encounter with Candace Bergen on the set of this movie. This was the most embarrassing thing that I've ever done in my life. We were shooting out on the marsh grasses along the banks of the Gulf Coast outside Corpus Christi. And... If you've never seen the marshes and the, it's it's all flat, it's all grasses, and it was a night shoot, so mm-hmm. they had musco lights up and all that kind of stuff. And I'm sitting, uh, watching the action, talking to a New York Times reporter who was doing a story on the film, and a helicopter starts to touch down in the middle of this vast ocean of grass, and who steps off? The incredible. Candace Bergen at the height of her beauty. I also love that she travels by helicopter. Just And they drop her at the set by helicopter. <laughs> I mean, dude, this is Texas. She get, exits the helicopter and starts walking towards our little, you know, director's chair village. And she's smiling at me with this big smile and her arms are outstretched. She's walking right towards me. And I thought to myself, oh my God, Louise told her how amazing I am. And she's <laughs> greeting me. And I get out of the chair and I walk over to her. She goes right past me <laughs> to Amy Madigan. And I just, it was, yeah. So there you go. I love that story. Though. It's because that would like, if that was, it was so spectacular with the wash of the blades blowing her clothes and her hair. And it's like, it's a movie. I was going to say, you couldn't script that better. That's, I mean, it's got comedy beats. It's got oh an epic God. moment. So from this, this amazing first experience with one of the world's most known filmmakers, you're kind of off to the races at this point. I really was. It gave me an incredible credibility right out of the box. But at the same time, I did not have the sophistication that a working actor, even in L.A., has when they're first starting out. You're constantly exposed to casting sessions, acting classes, your peers. I didn't have that. I was sort of ba-boom. Went right into my next film, which was uh, called Getting Even with Joe Don Baker. I played his girlfriend. Um, Eddie Albert and Audrey Landers. Um. And I had a great time, and I learned a lot. I I do absorb everything, right. everything. So it was an incredible education. Um, and it and then right after that, I did Legend of Billie Jean. Um, incredible actors, incredible director. It was a Steven Spielberg produced film. Was Legend of Billie Jean shot in Texas? Corpus Christi. Wow, I didn't know. I love that movie. Same location. It's amazing to me how timely that movie is. Yeah, with uh, especially the social dissonance of it and fighting back against like basically big government air quotes, but you know, Well, and not yeah. only that planting your flag as an individual. Yeah. Fair is fair. Yeah. You know? No, definitely. Um, who I am as an individual matters. Don't squash me. This is who I am. It's it's sort of an underrepresented film from that era, but I think uh, Dead for Filth listeners would do well to, uh, if you have not seen it, go see it uh, or revisit it if you haven't seen it in a while. Absolutely. Because uh, Carolyn's exactly right that it is a movie that is really about personal empowerment Absolutely. and identity. And uh, everyone in it also just looks amazing. Uh, <laughs> 
and Christian Slater's first movie. Yeah, he's a baby. He's, he's like a, like teeny in it. And, he was a baby, but he was knocking him off two at a time. <laughs> <laughs> and then he was fourteen years old. <laughs> and uh, that amazing Pat Benatar song in the soundtrack. Of yeah, course, it's like it, everything about it. Like honestly, uh, fellow gays, make this a cult classic. It is, but like it should be a gay cult classic because it's amazing. You know what? To me, it's a gay movie because she goes from being the traditional pretty girl with the long blonde hair she shaves her head and she goes very androgynous yeah because i felt like during that point in the film she's fighting like a young man but she is still a young woman yeah it's a a blurred gender line situation completely completely and she embraced it 100 percent. helen slater yeah she's so cool um I, I am a big fan of that movie. I love, uh, I, I always forget that you were in it, but um, <laughs> because it, we rarely get a chance to talk about it. So I'm glad you brought it up today. And then after that was? Um, after that was when the, the um, rounds of, of the audition rumors began. I had moved to Dallas by this time. Right. And uh, lived there only a short time before... Uh, the auditions began for Chainsaw. So it's interesting. Uh, m- listeners may not know that uh, there was a solid decade between the original Texas Chainsaw and Chainsaw 2. 13 years. And uh, also years. the uh, original version of the script that Toby had planned to make, if I'm not mistaken, you probably, I mean, I know you know this better than I, was a script called Beyond the Valley of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That w- I did not know that. Yes, allegedly uh, after Motel Hell came out, which was in of itself uh, a tribute to Texas Chainsaw, sure. there was a script that was written called Beyond the Valley of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre that was kind of tongue-in-cheek, uh, uh, both an homage to Texas Chainsaw and it, and its inspiration, like its inspiring of Motel Hell, uh, and, and Toby sort of knowing exactly what it was who wrote that i think he did i like and, and oh horror gosh. fans correct me if i'm wrong but i do remember having a conversation about this with bill mosley so like i'm not like totally off base okay and i do know that the um the uh, there was a title at some point called beyond the valley of the texas chainsaw massacre of course also going riffing off the idea that valley of the dolls is kind of a very serious story and then beyond the valley of the dolls is just like crazy solid camp yeah exactly and um then I think the what I, my understanding is that this the plot involved a whole town, which budgetarily was just not gonna happen. Gonna happen. So they kind of went back to the drawing board, and Chainsaw Two was born out of that. Now uh, I know that some of my my facts and figures. I love that. Might, I love that story. <laughs> I love that I got to tell you something you didn't know. I about know. It. I didn't uh, know. And I know that like you know there might be a few little bits of misinformation there based on what I've gathered over the years uh, reading about it and talking to Bill and talking to Joe Bob Briggs. But I do know that there was a version of the script that was about a town called Beyond the Valley of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre that existed before Chainsaw. Too. And they wow. just couldn't do it for budgetary reasons of a town. And I, I, I'm just like, wow, I'm actually telling you about the <laughs> something that I didn't know. <laughs> but um, so one of my favorite things about your entry into this world is, OK, so the, the rumors of this audition, you know, a movie that was obviously already a horror classic. They're making a sequel. They're going to make it in Texas because how could they not? You just told me a story that you went in and auditioned for Louis Mall. And it was like an audition that you nailed. You read live for him and he hired you on the spot. In the world of acting, that rarely happens, as you know. True. But like you kind of are an audition assassin in a way because <laughs> the story of your audition for Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 has entered what I consider to be horror legend. Like the idea that, I mean, you want, I, I think it's like one of those things that as people tell the story, it's probably gotten grander and grander over the years. But <laughs> I, I, for Dead for Filth listeners who maybe don't know, um, I, I would love you to tell your, your audition story for this movie. Well, it is, it is an unusual audition story. And um, I haven't heard or seen too many of those, but I think part of that is because frequently actors are just offered right and you don't have to audition but when i audition i try to live the action and the dialogue as truthfully and with as much reality to the situation as i can 
given the restrictions of where you usually are when you're doing these things, right? Right. Um, I had done this for Legend of Billie Jean. Um, I had sat next to another actor. We're in the truck. I'm the girl in the truck. The truck wrecks. I rocked my chair back and forth, and I tumped it over. Tump being a very distinctive Texas Texas term. (laughs) I tumped my chair over and rolled the chair over on top of me. And I crawled out from under the chair in the very way the girl in the truck crawls out from under the wrecked truck. And I know that's part of what got me that job. Right. With Chainsaw, the pages of script I got had virtually no dialogue. She's running. She's gunning. She's falling down. She's backing up. She's slamming doors. There's nobody that she's interacting with. There's nobody else in the scene. It's a single scene. Right. And um, we were in Austin, and it was the long hallway. There was a long hallway. And the girls were lined up in their chairs up and down the hallway. And I'm listening to the girls go into the room and come out of the room, in and out, in and out, quickly, which I thought, hmm, and silently. And I thought, hmm. (laughs) Because the action says she's screaming down the hallway to the ice house. She slams into the ice house. She slams the door. She piles shit in front of the door. And she grabs the the weapon or implement or whatever, the pitchfork. They live on fear. They live on fear. Which was very reminiscent of Amy Steele in... Friday 2. Uh, Friday 2. Yeah. Um, and I had that image in my head. So... I thought, fuck this. I'm just going to go. I'm going to do it. And I went to the. I I told the casting director, I'm going to run. I'm going to walk in working. So just tell them to be ready for whatever happens. And I ran screaming down the hallway, and I slammed into the room, slammed the door. I went and got Toby's chair, and I got Kit's chair, and I I went over and I just started pulling on him <laughs> to make him get out. And I piled the chairs in front of the door. And they weren't taping the audition. They didn't do taped auditions too too often back then, I don't suppose. Um, and then I backed into a corner doing They Live on Fear, They Live on Fear, because that's all that was there. Right. But I knew they were going to hire somebody that was athletic. And I knew they were going to hire somebody that wasn't afraid to work the action. And they walked right over. They were literally right in front of me. And I thought, okay, this this was good. Because <laughs> they definitely had no place to sit. Right. Well, you took their chair. <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> and I think for an actor to continue to grow and thrive, be willing to make an ass of yourself. You've got to be willing to put it all on the line and fuck it up. I read a, a quote from an actor who played opposite Sean Penn. They said, Sean Penn's always willing to be bad in order to be good. You know, and you don't envision Sean Penn being bad in anything. But I understand that idea. Yeah, you have to push the envelope. And sometimes you don't always know what that means. And you know what? I'm going to fail as often as I succeed anyway. Right. So why the fuck not? And of course you got the gig. Uh, Yeah, I did. And it (laughs) it ends up, uh, you know, being such a a defining moment in horror history, and I assume a defining moment for you. Oh, entirely. It set up the rest of my life. And the, uh, you know, what an amazing crew of people. I, uh, you know, you've got Bill Mosley and Dennis Hopper in a Toby Hooper film. Uh, Such a cool cast, such an outrageous script that could only have happened in the 80s, I feel. Uh, And... You had told me, you had mentioned about uh, when you were making the movie with Louis Maul that uh, there was an alcohol issue. But by oh, this yeah. point, you were getting sober, right? You were sober on the set of Chainsaw 2 or on the way? Because you had told me that you and Dennis Hopper kind of talked about this. Oh, yeah. Uh, Dennis had 18 months of sobriety and I had 18 months of sobriety when we met. And... You know, I I was still new enough in a particular 12-step program 
to still have a little bit of skepticism about who's really sober, who isn't, who's doing what, and who's doing this. And his story, his personal story and misadventures with drugs and alcohol were so well known. I was going to say, his are beyond legendary. He was the Keith Richards of actors back in back in in the in the 70s and 80s uh the fact that he lived to tell the tale was what you know was impressive right um but no he was clean and sober and he spent his downtime playing golf with willie nelson who's very well known for not being clean and sober (laughs) um but they played golf and golf he said was his new zen right that was his new way of of keeping himself balanced. Um, we went out to dinner one night and, you know, I tell this story and I know how many women react to this story. And I know they feel a lot of disgust with me for the way I reacted to this story, but it is a true story. And I still feel now the way I did then when Dennis sat down across from me in the restaurant and he started rearranging his place setting and he said, so, Caroline, how do you feel about recreational sex? <laughs> I mean, I, I'd have to laugh because that's a very matter of fact. Well, yeah. And I said, well, Dennis, as I rearranged my play setting, Dennis, with you, I don't think about it at all. <laughs> and he just kind of looked at me like, okay, I put forth my gambit. Now let's talk about oysters. I had some incredible blue points when I was up in Oregon. <laughs> I mean, you know, but I've had women say that was an incident of sexual harassment and, you know, you should have reported him. And no, no, you know, I, I, I am a mid-century girl. Um, I enjoy, I'm Southern to my core. Right. I'm a big flirt. I like men who are big flirts, whether they're straight or gay. Right. Um, you know, uh, that's just where it is for me. I never had anybody offer me a quid pro quo for a casting opportunity. I never had an agent that sent me to a hotel. I never had an agent that sent me to a private home for an audition. Right. We did things very by the book. Whenever I auditioned, there were usually two people in the room. Right. Up. I I never experienced this. I had men come on to me. Sometimes, you know, maybe a little rubbing of the arm or a little brushing against me or whatever. And it never bothered me because I knew what the guy was doing. I knew he wasn't going to get anywhere. There were actually occasions when I responded in the way the guy would have wanted me to because I was dating and I was young and I wanted to meet guys and... But there was never a moment when I felt I had compromised myself in any way for any opportunities. And I think it was unique, perhaps, to the horror community at that time. Uh, I am proud of the horror community for being so uh, respectful, by and large. I mean, like every community, we have uh, problem people and and people who have misstepped. But that's every community. What I do think about our, uh, you know, having been part of horror for as long uh, as you have. And uh, that's how we know each other as well as I, you know, I made the joke at the top of the show, Tales of Poe being a favorite. But like that's because. Which is one of my favorites, too. It was one of the biggest moments of freedom that I've ever experienced as an actress. I know. Although I'm sure that there's probably something to be said that I wrote you a role where you never talked. (laughs) You know what? But that was the beauty of it. And that was the reason I wanted to do it, is that it was a silent. Yeah, you were amazing. And Um, uh, to take on the challenge of a silent film, I watched a documentary about Buster Keaton the other night. It's it's something to be able to pull off a performance when you are restricted in the tools you can use. It's an entirely new Discipline, And it was something I had to discover for myself because I'd never done it before. So for me, Tales of Poe, that was an extraordinary opportunity. And I loved every minute of it. Well, I mean, I'm humbled uh, and I loved working with you on it. And I love that our friendship was born out of it. And that's literally what I was saying is that I love our community uh, and how this genre has really introduced me to some of the most caring and kindest people. Uh, It's always so interesting when you... uh, 
talk to people who are not into horror, there's this perception in the world that horror fans are weird or twisted or like, you know, but usually I've uh, seen that the horror community is some of the the most community-based people. The people who come together, if, you know, if someone's kid is sick, you know, everybody will like join in and help out. Or, you know, if a, if a store that uh, is closing, we help with auction items or it's such like, uh, you know, for such dark art, such Mm -hmm. good hearts. And I love that. I agree entirely. When John Dugan came down with cancer and he's one of the few remaining Members of our Chainsaw family, mm-hmm. um, not only did they do a, not only was a GoFundMe established by, I believe, a fan, um, it was promoted and, and perpetuated by the fan base itself. Um, not only did they make enough money to pay his bills, they managed to pay their household expenses for months. And that means something to me. I I think it's a very generous community. I think it's because it's a reality-based community. Um, yeah, there are a lot of fantasies and a lot of, um, you know, crazy scenarios that take place in horror. But it comes from a place of understanding what the world is like, as we right. discussed earlier. Um, I think that's why horror has been inordinately more welcoming of the gay community than 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 standard a lot of standard movies right and films and this is post haze code post post haze code of course uh something i i am glad that you you organically brought this up because now's a good time to kind of transition into a little bit of your career of late and uh some of the films that you've done i mean obviously from chainsaw to uh, this legacy begins and as i said you have Worked in many different TV shows, and uh, you've you've popped up in. I mentioned Leprechaun Three. You were in <laughs> Sharknado Four, uh, but you know Hatchet, Stepfather Two, Stepfather Two. You were like <laughs> the queen of sequels, honestly. Oh, uh, but then the uh, you know just this this kind of train of of films in genre as well as appearances and stuff outside of genre. I mentioned Days of Thunder. Uh, you know, you were on Murder She Wrote. And silk, Twice. yeah, and silk stockings. <laughs> Which I love. Um, was was Murder She Wrote a great experience? Oh my God! Number one, you're invited to appear on the show. <laughs> they actually write. This is back in the day. Obviously, they would write a letter to your agent inviting you to appear. It's amazing, and then they would have the script hand delivered to your door. You go to the Universal lot for wardrobe in one of the shows, um, in one of the two that I did, there was a cocktail party scene. I got to wear an original Oleg Cassini. And Oleg Cassini had a romance with Grace Kelly and designed her clothes. And he was one of the premier costume designers in Hollywood. Um, During the shooting of that cocktail party scene, um, Miss Lansbury crossed the set and said, Mr. Shaw and I admire you so much in that dress. We're going to have it boxed up and sent home with you. Oh, wow. And I have it to this day in my closet. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. We love an Angela Lansbury tidbit on the oh show, Oh, my by the way. God. Uh, she's so gaslight always. Uh, I will say uh, I was at a 40th anniversary screening of Death on the Nile. And she was there and she was ready to dish like her post Q&A. She was talking about Betty Davis and Danny Kaye. And it was like it was transcendent. Uh, And she knew everyone and knew everything. And she had a great time. You can tell she just loves making movies and acting. Uh, I uh, I allowed myself to go on a murder. She wrote sidebar because how could I not? Um, <laughs> but what I was going to say is that um, a lot of your more recent output, you do tend to work with a lot of queer directors and queer filmmakers. I do. And uh, there has been an ongoing discussion on the show when I have uh, – queer creators on who uh, love horror, as everyone on the show does. It's the nature of the show. But occasionally the topic comes up about how gay men are drawn to the idea of final girls. And I've heard a lot of different theories about why uh, gay men in particular love the idea of the final girl and why we prop them up as our heroes. But I've never had one of horror's (laughs) final girls 
on the show. So I'm kind of going to re- reverse the question for you, the great survivor of Texas Chainsaw 2. <laughs> uh, what is it do you think that draws the LGBTQ audience to the final girl, if you think there is a draw at all? I believe they're virtually interchangeable. They recognize one another in each other. Uh, for the gay community not only to have survived um, what it went through, I mean, uh, the gay community's all, either the gay community has been underground or as the gay community began to emerge. Right. Um, there was a lot of physical threat and, I mean, Stonewall. Yeah. You don't really have to say much of anything else. And the AIDS crisis. Um, for them to survive and thrive, there has to be what Kit Carson explained to me about Stretch. There's a ferocity in her. And it's an elemental and primitive need to live. And live as you would live. Be who you are. Do what you must. Um, one of the things a lot of people don't know about Houston, Texas, um, Texas is a very individual place. It's a very individual state. It thrives and rewards the individual. And I remember very distinctly in, I would say it was probably 1980, and I was living in the Montrose area, which is ground zero for all uh all of Houston's gay political life. Mm -hmm. They built a very strong community with the headquarters being Mary's, which was the gay bar on Westheimer uh, that we all knew. From that nucleus came this entire world of art, culture, politics, um, business. One of the the most uh, successful business communities Uh, in the world is the gay community in Houston, Texas, as well as West Hollywood here in in L.A. But I remember in 1980, living on my street, um, you know, the AIDS crisis had begun in earnest. And there was a concert pianist who lived next door to me who had Kaposi's. Mm. And everybody called it gay cancer then because nobody really knew. Nothing had been distinctively isolated and named at right. that point. And there was an old man who lived on the other side of us. And one day, God bless that man, the ambulance came and he had passed away and they had taken him away. And the neighbors, you know how it is, they all gather and, you know, all that stuff. And one of the guys, one of the people said to somebody, oh, he was just a queer. And this old, he looked like he'd been a roughneck you know, all of his life. Right. He said, you know what? He might be queer, but he's our queer. <laughs> oh, Texas. And it moved me. Everybody is related to, works with, lives next door, is friends with, has a child who's friends with. Everybody knows somebody's gay. Right. LGBTQ. Um, and I think what the gay community began to learn is, like I said, to survive and thrive you must be strong and you must assert who you are and you must take what is yours. I mean, that's there's no other way. There just isn't. And the thing that's great about the final girl is she's not going down. Right. She's not going down. Now, that's an answer. (laughs) (laughs) It's just the experience that I have lived. Right. And today, when I go back to Houston, Dallas, Austin, the gay community is so completely assimilated. Well, as you pointed out before we went on air, uh, Houston has had two gay mayors. Two, I'm not going to say they're not, I don't know if they're dead yet. If, one, if either one of them are dead, I would say. But um, in the early 70s to mid 70s, we did have a gay mayor. And his father was a power broker in Texas and very not gay. But his son was very gay <laughs> and everybody knew it. And, you know, when you when you grow up in the South, there's what you see on the outside and the good manners and the gentility and the beautiful clothes and the beautiful settings and the wonderful food and all the wonderful things. Right. And all those things. And then there's what's really going on underneath. Um, and that's the way it was with Houston's first gay mayor. So people just they knew, but they wouldn't talk about it. They knew, but they didn't discuss it because he was a good businessman. 
whenever there are compensations like that in these very hypocritical environments, and the thing is, is you do see it around the rest of the world, even places that seem to be very sophisticated. Right. It can be jarring to encounter um, anti-LGBTQ bias and aggression and laws and things we don't have here. So when people complain a little too much about the U.S., I always think about getting on and off planes. Right. Because once you get off the plane in another country, you're not here anymore. You know? Right. And that that bothers me. I get it. That bothers me. Well, I think it's just a perspective to keep in mind, for sure. Oh, yeah. Uh, so... You know, this is a very powerful discussion. Uh, And one of the things that uh, we've been talking about all along is sort of how identity integrates with the art that we make. Of course. And at the top of the show, you had mentioned this kind of brings us to the now. As I said, like when I asked you about Final Girls, you uh, more recently have been working with a lot of queer filmmakers. Sure. And uh, but you also uh, at the beginning of the show, we're talking about how. In the larger Hollywood sense, there are people who don't necessarily know how to reconcile uh, a woman of a certain age with overt sexuality. And something that I'm really interested in, uh, because, of course, it would come up in a show of this nature, is the relationship between sex and horror. And uh, obviously there is one. And does that exist for you? Do you do you like that eroticism in your world of scares? Or uh, why do you think there's such a, a crossover? I think it's just so it's so elemental to being human. I mean, our major motivators are to stay alive and reproduce. You know, mm-hmm. and that the sexual impulse is like it's just there. It's going to be there. Right. And what I find, not only for women, women of a certain age and the LGBTQ community, the European marketplace and the European group of directors seem to handle it a lot more comfortably and with just a lot more, uh, just an existential zen than you get in the U.S. often. Um there, you know, uh, Gaspar Noé, uh, and he, the way he deals with sexuality, um, uh, heterosex, homosex, it's sex, right? It's sexuality. It's elemental. It's 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 who we are. It's what we are. Uh, Verhoeven, Adrian Lyne, um, anybody who's ever worked with Helen Mirren, <laughs> um, Sharon Stone. Um, there are just and and there are just so many women um, who I believe are are living in their sexual selves with a lot of confidence. Right. I'd like to see more gay men and gay women. It's easier to deal with lesbianism because it's female sexuality. Right. But with gay men, it's a little. It it seems to be a little more. Uh, what's the word? Balkanized or well, I think what it happens sort is, of isolated is there's still it's it speaks to systemic misogyny because what happens is it still um, it has to do with a masculinity as the world itself views it being compromised in some way, which is all bullshit anyway. Uh, like I think straight men kind of can engage with lesbianism because they're like, oh, these are two hot women, so it still like speaks to something carnally that I I want to be in the middle of that. Yes, exactly. Whereas uh, there, there is this like faux uh, masculine thing that like, am I being preyed? Basically, I think in some ways, straight men are worried about gay men because they are worried that they're being objectified in the way that they objectify women. And that freaks them out because they know how terrible they are. And it's just the honest <laughs> truth. I mean, it's OK being objectified if you are available to that and you want to follow that up. Right. But yeah, but that's it. Like, honestly, the, the bottom line is consent is sexy, you know. 
know, that's it. Like, if yeah. you are open for that, then yes. But uh, no, I think that it's like a larger discussion for the Judith Butlers of the world and like people <laughs> who uh, do gender studies than for me to weigh in on. But that's that's always been sort of like my armchair theory. Uh, but no, as I had mentioned, you had mentioned European filmmakers uh, and you've been working a lot with uh, Marcel Walls, who's yes, a filmmaker. Uh, and I know that you've got some new projects with him coming up. So this is a good segue into what are you working on right now? What's coming up? What can you tell us about? Well, you know, there's this new trend now where everything is a secret until you release it. It's completely the antithesis of everything that I know about marketing and publicity and things like that. So it's frustrating. Um, What I love about Marcel is not just his European sensibility or his gay sensibility. Um, The quality of his products are utterly beautiful. And I I think it's his sensibilities are are very European and uh, but also the way the characters relate to one another the storylines that he uses um, he juxtaposes romance and beauty and sexuality in such a way he did a movie called Le Petit Mort uh, in Germany years Mm -hmm. ago that is extraordinary and very very honest and it absolutely brings sex and horror into an absolute literal collision and it works and uh, the most recent thing I did for him is almost the exact opposite it is still very sensual and very beautiful but it has a heavy noir sensibility to it and uh, you you can't yet talk about that topic that project I can't if I if I even give away the primary identifying feature of the characters, it 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 blows the deal. Right, but <laughs> but, but you did work with him on Blood Feast. Yes, which I did. Is coming out soon in physical media format. Um, it should be out in DVD, the director's cut. Right. Uh, we had a distributor's hell with the release of the film we got a beautiful red carpet send-off and then it fell the guy just dropped it flat right the next thing you know ten thousand r-rated dvds are dropping into walmart without even an announcement so that was jarring but the dvd is going to be coming out it does have a very queer sensibility um it's got a heterosexual sensibility as well what i like is that it's it's just it just is. Right. You know? That's what. That's all we can There ask, are gay right? characters and there are straight characters. Um, but it does have its very distinctive sexual grounding. Well, and I think that that is something that you yourself seem to be very interested in, in engaging with. Uh, I have to... <laughs> no, I have... Like, in terms of... You While said, I keep my looks, yes. Um <laughs> There's something about pushing those buttons, though. Would you consider yourself a button pusher? I would. I'm contrarian. If somebody tells me I have to do something, oh, You want to do exactly the opposite. Or I just want to do whatever it is they don't want me to do. I'll just <laughs> do the one thing that you don't want me to do. Don't touch it. I will touch it. I'm the toucher. <laughs> um, plus, I do feel like at least within our genre, there aren't too many women in my age range doing, attempting what I'm trying to attempt. Right. Um, somebody who is vital, somebody who is physical, athletic, uh, sexy, interested, inquisitive, curious, who still carries a lot of the hallmarks of who I was as stretch. Right. I went through my mothering period, which is being a mother is a complete submission of self. It is a complete. It is a complete submission of the self. I mean, everything is sublimated to those little lives, right. and a significant portion of who I am as a human being, albeit a lot of the more superficial stuff, but still, um, that feeling of sexual power, that feeling that when I walk into a a nightclub or a restaurant, men are looking at me. I enjoy that. I like that. I dress the way I do and I look the way I look for a reason. Right. It's not an accident. Um, That's gone for such a long period of time as a mother. As my boys grew and began to have their own independent lives, I thought, I want that back. I want to get that back. And there are a lot of people who don't like that. 
And that's what I'm discovering. I would say it's about a 50-50 proposition at this point. Well, but you're doing it for you, and that's what matters first. Well, but also I'm doing it for the product. Right. Because when you look back on a lot of the more significant horror films, anything with Betty Davis, Olivia de Havilland, Joan Crawford, it's there. It's a subtext. It's a part of it. And um, I like those angles. Yeah. So before we wrap up, one of the questions I like to ask uh, guests, because this is a show that is in honor and worship of cinema, as you know, what have you been watching recently that you like that inspires you? It doesn't have to be horror, but what is uh, what's your viewing? Um, one of the things that I watched the other night was from um, it's called The Highwaymen with Kevin Costner and Woody Harrelson. And the director, uh, gosh, I wish I could remember his name now. Shoot, he's got three names. Um, <laughs> I watched it partly because it was the Bonnie and Clyde story. Right. But it's the Bonnie and Clyde story taken from the point of view of the of the cops. And I thought that would be a very interesting thing to play as a woman. A period piece about a woman, she may not be a officer of the law or a ranger or any of those things, but she is in search of a particular group of people that she wants to stop. It's a very iconoclastic right. idea, and I like that. Um, I watch everything, partly because every Sunday I take my son to see whatever e-ticket ride is out there. <laughs> so I'll be doing the Avengers movie this weekend. Um, it's uh, it's going to be three hours, I hear. Oh, my God. I pray there's an intermission. <laughs> <laughs> so my ass doesn't grow to the seat. Um, I watched a movie called Longford uh, that features, it's an English film. And it's about a man who took in and tried to help rehabilitate a female serial killer. In England. Um, And I can't remember her name off the top of my head. But. um, Well, you've got the titles of the films and that's what counts. Yeah. Then the audience can go find it. It was about it was a story about a couple in the 60s who were kidnapping small children, torturing them and burying them in the moors. And it is very taboo. Yeah. It seems pretty grisly. Uh, And a woman was doing that. And yes, it is grisly. They actually tape recorded. Uh, the torture of a young eight-year-old girl. And this is a true story? This is a true story. Wow. Where did you watch this on? I watched it on Netflix. Okay. I mean, I might have to check that out. I'm going to write that down. Um, and it there is a genuine documentary that surrounds this uh, movie. I keep wanting to say Jim Broadbent plays the role of Longford. Um, but the thing is, is I think the male perpetrator died in jail of a disease, but the female perpetrator did not. As a matter of fact, she was released from prison. Yikes. Yeah. Um, Women can do pretty awful things, too. And... And you want to play them all. You know, (laughs) if you want somebody to go there, I will go. Well, as you said, push those buttons. (laughs) Uh, oh, I good final question. I have a final question that's just for fun. Um, we talked a little bit, of course, on the impact that Stretch and Texas Chainsaw 2 had on your life and your career mm-hmm. and the trajectory that that led into. And, you know, like I said, seeing you here behind the microphone evokes an image of, of, of Stretch. Uh, so I have to ask, all of these years later, after, you know, the film's, it's what, 30 plus years? Well, 86, 33 years. So 33. 33 years later, if you had to say, what do you think Stretch is doing now? Wow. Adam Green, I believe, sort of took that in hand with Hatchet 3, the Amanda Perlman character with Hatchet 3. Mm -hmm. But I wonder. Um, That role was written almost as a summing up. You know, Amanda went on to go into a Honey Island swamp to look for Victor Crowley, and she found him, and he murdered her. Right. Um, 
But in the movie, unmistakably and indelibly, she's taken the saw in hand. What if something else happened? What if? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Carolyn, where can people find you? You can find me at Willie Caroline, W-I-L-L-I-C-A-R-O-L-I-N-E on Twitter. And the very same configuration on Instagram, without the at, Willie Caroline. Um, And I do have a Shopify store that's a part of my website, Caroline Williams Actress. Love that. Thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing your a bit of your history, a bit of your insight. I'm so glad uh, that we finally were able to get you on. I am thrilled that I got to come on. It was about freaking time, dude. <laughs> <laughs> well, listeners, as I said, Caroline is a horror icon. Uh, if you haven't already, uh, please make sure you check out some of her many, many, many performances. Uh, and uh, yeah, make it a, a Williams marathon this weekend <laughs> in honor of this awesome guest. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Michael Verratti. This has been Dead for Filth. Yours always in Glam and Gore. Good night and good luck. Dead for Filth is a Reverie original podcast, executive produced by Aaliyah J. Daniels, LaShawn McGee, Chris Rodriguez, and Damian Pelliccione. The show is produced by Drew Phillips and sound engineered and edited by Josh Perkins. Download the Reverie app and use the code FILTH for 25% off your first three months.